Well, we're in a sermon series based in the, the book of Acts. Um, the book of Acts, for those of you that are maybe new to church or you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is a, a book in the New Testament that actually outlines the history that takes place after the resurrection of Jesus. So when the church was first being formed, it was just beginning, there's this, these stories, this series of events that take place, and Acts is detailing this. And in its pages, we see the formation of this new community of faith and this thing that today we call the church. Um, but let me just tell you and remind you that it wasn't about cathedrals. It wasn't about sanctuaries or auditoriums. It was about a group of people who were living life together, living out the gospel together in a particular way, living as what we've come to refer to as the new humanity. Now, um, this series, we're calling it When the World Turned Upside Down because this group of people and the way that they were living, it literally changed the world around them. They got this reputation for who they were and what they were doing because of the way that the gospel was, was shaping them, because of the way that it was liberating them, the way that it was causing them to fight for justice, the way that it united them, the way that it shifted their values and how they loved people or even who they loved. All of these things together caused this disruption in the world around them. They made a difference. And so what we've hoped for in this series is that we could walk through this book and then be able to see like, what was it about these people that made them this way? Or what happened when their values and how they were living intersected with culture? What took place? Because we wanna be these kinds of people. I love this quote from Elton Trueblood. He said this, he said, it was the incendiary character of the early Christian fellowship, which was amazing to contemporary Romans. It was amazing precisely because there was nothing in their experience that was remotely similar to it. Religion they had in vast quantities, but it was nothing like this. Much of the uniqueness of Christianity in its original emergence consisted of the fact that simple people could be amazingly powerful when they were members of one another. As everyone knows, it's almost impossible to create a fire with one log, even if it's a sound one, while several poor logs may make an excellent fire if they stay together as they burn. I love this quote because it speaks to something that we need to speak to today, that individualistic Christianity, no matter how moving it is or how charismatic it is or how devoted you are in your individualism, it doesn't catch fire. It's communities of people who stick together, who demonstrate a different kind of existence in this one that actually changes the world, that the watching world is actually looking for. So our hope is very simple, that we might do the same, that we might be the same, that you and I might discover this thing we're calling a third way to live, that we might be a part of this new humanity, that we could potentially as a collective be an incendiary fellowship. Now, as we approach the text for today, I need to say something about the Bible before we get there. Uh, I realize that some people dismiss the Bible and some of you, you may be watching and you may think that, that the Bible is irrelevant or that it isn't very useful. Um, maybe you just don't think it's very practical. But let me just tell you this, after years of studying the Bible, after years of, uh, of looking at what the Bible is, I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is not boring or irrelevant. That if anything, if you've drawn that sort of conclusion, you've done it because it was the preacher you were listening to, or it was the church that was representing it. Because the Bible is profound. The Bible is transformative. It's powerful. Um, for example, a minute ago, I referred to the book of Acts as a history, and it certainly is a history, but it's also so much more. It's poignant. It's timely. It's teaching us how to navigate days 
like the ones we're in right now in this moment. I mean, t- today's text, the timing of it, um, the, the, the teaching that's in it, what it's going to reveal to us. If over the last several days, you've been wondering like how we together as a community of faith live in a world that's on fire because of racism and torn apart because of people's brokenness, if that's what you're wondering, then there might not be a better text for us to be reading. And that's the thing about the Bible and the spirit of God is that this whole thing is a setup. Let me just tell you this, before we get into this, I could not have orchestrated the timing of this. And when, I, when I'm done today, I think you're gonna see why this is so amazing and how God is moving even in the text that we're on today. So with that, uh, I wanna dive in. And we're gonna start, I'm gonna start by reading in Acts chapter six. We're gonna start in verse one. We're gonna walk through this and I'm gonna explain it. And if you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, the words are gonna be on the screen. So just track with me as we begin this. Acts chapter six, verse one says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So let's take a look at what's happening here because. Um, this is way bigger than what you may see on the surface. So verse one, it says this, let me just revisit it. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose among, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So these are in these first days, these early days when the church is growing, more and more people are being added. We've been reading about this throughout the series. The number of disciples is growing and things are good. The, 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 the trajectory is up and to the right. But then there's this complaint that arises in the church. Now, I have been around church long enough to say that I have heard a few complaints over the years. Um, somebody doesn't like this. Somebody doesn't like that. Somebody had a, a desire for this and it didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen. I think if you're watching this and you've been a part of church, you know exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. But there's a massive difference between the vast majority of complaints that I've heard over the years in the church and the complaint that's arising here in this moment. Um, there are two characteristics, by the way, of most of the complaints that I frequently hear around churches and from other pastors. And, and usually there's, there's these two things. First of all, they're, they're typically self-serving. In other words, it could be summed up with, by somebody saying, uh, I don't like this and, and you, um, you know, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. And it's just this thing that they didn't care for. It's like someone saying, I personally don't care for this thing. It's about serving them. And then secondly, most of the complaints that I've ever heard in the church are about people's preferences. The complaints are self-serving and it's not about, it's, it's not about other people being served well. It's about me not getting things the way that I want them. So, so they're self-serving and they're usually about preferences. The complaint that rises up in, in Acts chapter six is very different. First, you'll notice that it's members of a group 
making a complaint on behalf of their widows. This is not the widows saying we're not getting attention. It is other people saying, wait a second, we see something happening or not happening for this particular group of people. And we need to do something about that. We need to solve this. Secondly, it's not a preference that they're addressing. It's a prejudice. They're talking about a prejudice that exists. I wanna explain some things about this early church and where they come from. Um, in the early days, in the first days of this new church, it was made up of people who were Jewish. The early church was predominantly Jewish individuals. However, within that group of Jewish individuals, there were two different groups within Judaism during this time. There are the Hebrews, and then there are what referred to as the Hellenists. Let me just explain this. When the Jews were dispersed, there was a diaspora that had taken place earlier before the church began, and the Jews were spread out towards the West they came into contact with uh, the Greek culture that was dominant at the time. And so there were new philosophical ideas that they were introduced to. There were, there were new cultures that they were engaged in, new ideas about reality and how to form thoughts, all, all sorts of things that defined that culture. Now, they may not have worshiped the Greek gods, but these Jewish individuals, they were living and breathing in Greek thought. They were shaped by Greek culture. That's where they worked. That's where they lived. That's where their children played. It was even the language that they spoke. They were Greek-speaking individuals. So this first group is the Hellenists. And the Hellenists in this story, they're the ones who have returned to Jerusalem. These particular Hellenists are ones who said, we want to go back to the city of Jerusalem, to the place of our, of our, of our faith heritage. That's what they've done here. They've gone home. And then on the other hand, you have the Hebrews. And the Hebrews are those Jews who had grown up and lived around Jerusalem in that region there. They never left. They grew up speaking Aramaic. They hadn't been influenced by this other foreign culture. So even as I describe that to you, you quickly probably can see, as I do, that they might share the same faith, but there are sharp cultural differences, distinctions between these two different groups which is why they referred to each other with these two distinct names, Hebrews and Hellenists, all of them Jews. Now, it's important for us to understand that these distinctions actually resulted in a cultural hierarchy. It resulted in preferential treatment. In fact, that's what we're seeing here. I mean, these Hellenists, they moved back to this region because they wanted to be a part of or closer to the real thing, which means if you had been a part of the real thing, then you felt superior. The, the, the Hebrews sort of viewed the, the, the Hellenists um, like Californians who moved to Oregon. Um, we both live here. We both love it here for the same reasons, but there's this little undercurrent of how you feel towards those that have come here and sort of co-opted the place where you grew up. It's incredibly important right now that we acknowledge this. Um, some people have privilege some people have unearned preferential treatment because they were born in a particular place, because they speak a particular way, because they have a particular color of skin. That's what privilege, when we use that term in our culture today, that's what we're talking about. And that exists in our culture today, just as it existed in that culture then. So then we step back and we ask the question, well, what's really happening in this story? Well, the first church, the early church is formed in this context, which means the first Jews who became followers of the way were both Hebrew and Hellenist, 
which means that even though these people have begun to live out this new kind of life, the distinctions still existed for them. The privilege even still existed in that culture. We bring all of our background, we bring all of our culture, we bring all of our preferences, everything that, we, that shaped us as, as human beings, we bring that into our becoming followers of Jesus. In fact, I like to think of it this way sometimes. It's like we bring it, it's in this bag and we sort of dump it out on the table. All of these preferences, all of these, these ideas, all of these ways of thinking, we put it out on the table. And then as we live our life with Jesus, he begins to sort through it. He begins to do things with it. And sometimes he redeems this and sometimes he renews this and sometimes he reframes this and sometimes he removes it. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what happened here. This is really interesting because over the last several weeks, we've been reading about how this church was generous and how they shared and how is even this line that says that nobody had need. And then you turn to Acts chapter six and we discovered in the daily distribution of food in the church, the Hellenistic widows were being left out. There was a blind spot for them. Everybody's needs are met. And then all of a sudden, wait a second, there's this group that we haven't been seeing. By the way, this was normal everywhere else. This is just how things happened in that culture. This blind spot that people had toward the Hellenists, it was everywhere in the culture. But what I love about this, and we're gonna go back to what I talked about last week when I talked about the authenticity and transparency that was existing in this community that was being formed in this. What I love about this is that because of that transparency, because of that authenticity, there was an environment of grace that had been created among these early Christians. And quite possibly for the first time in their lives, these people, they felt like they could say something, like the church was safe. The leaders, they may have been blind, but from what we can see, they had exhibited the character and the grace that allowed these Hellenistic followers to actually say something, to reveal the blind spot. They had somehow made an environment where they could actually speak up and do something about this. And, and you know what I really love about this even more than that is this, that the 12 disciples from what we see, they didn't get defensive. They didn't explain what happened or how it happened. They didn't argue with the, with the finer points. They just simply seemingly said, yep, you're right. You're right, we've ignored your widows. And then the very next several verses are dedicated to explaining their solution, which by the way, included elevating these Hellenistic Jews into positions of authority and influence in the church. So let me just say this, because we need to hear this. The question facing us is not whether or not prejudice and distinction exists. That's not a question. The question is, what will we do about these things? What will we do about them? Now, we're starting to see in the middle of this why they turned the world upside down. 
we're starting to see because the world is watching this. In fact, just if you look at the next verse, after they solve this, after they deal with this distinction and prejudice that existed in their own church, look at, look at verse seven. It says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, so this barrier gets acknowledged, this division, it gets dealt with. And then there's this breakthrough. I mean, do you realize how scandalous it is that this verse, I mean, it's shocking to read that Jewish priests, men who worked in the temple were becoming followers of Jesus. See, I truly believe that when we, when the church gets this right, when we get this right together, there is a renewed movement of God that takes place in our midst. That's what happens. But let me just tell you this. There is a way that this can go wrong. In fact, it's spelled out in the verses that follow and the events that take place next. So we read about these individuals who are chosen for this, this new position of servant leadership. And among them is this individual named Stephen. Um, we see more of him in the next few verses. And I just want you to check this out. In verse eight, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So this is Stephen, who's one of the Hellenistic Jews who's been chosen to serve. It says in verse nine that some of those who belonged to the synagogues of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, just so you're clear about this, Stephen is this Hellenistic Jew turned Christian, and these people that are disputing with him are actually Hellenistic Jews themselves. So they, they come from the same cultural background. They come from the same religious background. And then this is what they do. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up fault witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Understand that these Hellenists, they understand they don't have the power to really do anything in this moment because of the position they had in the culture. So they go to the Hebrew Jews and they fabricate rumors about Stephen. They create a controversy around him. Now, the question then is, well, why? Why would they do this? Let me just explain something about these Hellenists. Some of these Hellenists, not all of them, but some of these were those who had known slavery. That's this comment about the freedmen. They'd either been personally freed from slavery or they had descended from parents who'd been slaves. But all of these Hellenists, all of this whole group included, in their eyes, they had been faithful to God. They had kept their identity in some foreign culture that was pressing against them. They had worn this badge of courage. And so these anxious souls, these anxious individuals, they can't, they can't bear the thought that there's this individual who might disrupt this. They can't hear the order that's coming from Stephen. They can't hear the, the claims that he's making because all of those things that he's saying, it's a threat to their heritage. It's threatening what they're comfortable with. It's threatening their normalcy. So let me ask you a question. When somebody threatens you, or your people, or your heritage, what do you do? What would you do? I love this quote from Dr. Willie Jennings. He says this, he says, we will be born in the tight space between faith and fear and forever live in that space. 
Only the Holy Spirit keeps that space from collapsing in on us. When and where the church resists the Spirit, we see again and again that mournful collapse. These men that we're reading about, these Hellenistic Jews, they saw their fears collapse onto their faith. It crushes their faith. And the only thing they're left with is worldly solutions, worldly captivity. And so that's why they're doing this. They're so afraid they're gonna lose that they, they now begin to exercise these worldly practices. Like over the next few verses, you, you can read them on your own sometime this week, but Stephen begins to preach. Essentially, Stephen preaches a very similar to the messages that Peter has been preaching that we've seen throughout the book so far. And he basically has the same point that Peter has been making. He's been saying, listen, God is at work. God's doing something and you guys are missing it. Like you haven't seen it. That's the, that's the continual message is just trying to open people's eyes to the reality that God is moving in this moment and they're missing it. Well, these people hear Stephen's message and they're just outraged. And so chapter seven, fast forward to verse 54. We read this, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. And they took his life. Outside the walls of the city, they stoned this man. Why? Because deep down, they saw him as a threat. And out of fear, out of their discomfort, they killed him. You know, all week as I've looked at this passage I, and looked at the events around us in our world right now, I couldn't help but see that the Hellenist Stephen preached the same message as the Hebrew Peter. And all week long, I've just sort of wondered, is it possible that the reason that the Hebrews let the Hebrew Peter go, you know, they challenged him, they beat him, they told him not to quit doing what he's doing. Is the reason they let him go, but they were comfortable taking Stephen's life, was it due to his cultural differences? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is this. What these men all had in common, whether they were the instigators who brought Stephen to light or whether they were the executioners, what they had in common was that all of them were, they were not defending the unearned favor of a God who, who had loved them. That is not what they're defending. What they were defending, what they saw threat being threatened was the power and the prestige that they had earned because of where they were born or because of the things they had done with their own two hands, the work they'd done, and now they needed to protect it. And let me just tell you this, that's what it looks like to get it wrong. And they got it wrong because of what was at the center of who they are. See, if you go back to that loving, transparent, beautiful community that readily responded to the complaint of the Hellenists, at the center of that community was the gospel. And the gospel, by the way, always has to be at the center of everything that we're doing. We always have to come back to this. 
because the gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel says that all of us are broken. And simultaneously, the gospel says that all of us are loved. It's all inclusive. Everyone is broken. We all have our issues. Nobody's perfect. And we are all equally unconditionally loved. The gospel, every time we look at what Jesus did on the cross, it reminds us we are made in the image of God and he accepts us and loves us equally as human beings. This is why when the church was exploding and they're teaching people about this new community of faith, they would say things like this, like Paul said to the, the church at Galatia, they said this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. Now that makes all kinds of sense. Now you see it. That there's no achievement. There's no position. There's no heritage. There's no situation that distinguishes you in the eyes of God. That's what's being said. You are all one in Christ. He's creating a new identity. He's shaping and forming a new humanity and anyone can be a part of this. See, let me, just, let me just tell you this, that the gospel, it begins its work right away at the most critical part of who we are. And then it begins to work its way out from there. Let me just explain this. When you and I witness the resurrection of Jesus and we understand what happened on the cross, immediately death and despair are removed from the equation. There is now hope and there is life. And the most immediate thing after that is that your questions about value and whether or not you're loved or answered. When we look at the cross of Jesus, there's no question that we are deeply loved. Even in our most broken, vulnerable state, you are loved and you are accepted. And what happens after that is we begin to flesh out the implications of this. I mean, if this is true, I mean, if I know that I'm loved, if I know that, that I'm accepted, if I've been included and God's, God's done these things to, to prove his love for me, then how does that reshape my, my will? How does that reshape this thing or that thing? What, what do I let go of? What do I change? How do I, how do I move through my life as an accepted, loved person who knows the grace of Jesus? That changes everything. I'm no longer threatened by the things I used to be threatened by. I no longer have to fight for the things that I used to have to fight for. See, there, there's this cascade of outcomes in our lives when we center ourselves on the truth of the gospel, when we begin to live that out and let it sink into our lives. And that's what's happening here. And that's what has to happen today. I'm, I'm gonna close with, with some theology for a moment. Um, there's this doctrine that we hold to, a, a doctrine that us uh, preachers we talk about this kind of thing. Um, it's a doctrine called the divinity of Christ, the divinity of Jesus. And there are radical implications of this doctrine. For example, first of all, it makes a statement, not that Jesus looks like God, but that God looks like Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful things about that doctrine is if you wanna know what God's like, well, you just look at Jesus. But then even more unbelievable, even more, more powerful is the reality that Jesus would then refer to the church. He would refer to us as his body. We, the body, should look like Jesus and represent God. That's what Jesus called us to, meaning that you and I extend the same love and the same acceptance and the same grace to others that was extended to us. That's the way 
we live. Let me just reiterate what I've been saying for the past couple of weeks. These are challenging times. These are complicated times. But this right now is our opportunity to show people Jesus in the most powerful of ways. And I invite you to join an incendiary community that is on fire with the love and the acceptance of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna give you a moment right now because I've just said a lot and I think you need to allow this to sink in. So some songs are gonna play and it's a chance for you to reflect and to think about the implications of this on you. Uh, When the worship's over, I'm gonna be back and offer a benediction and we'll follow that up with a few updates and announcements. Sing let the king, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh he is my song. You are good, you are good, oh, you are good.
So now, may you be completely humble and gentle. May you be patient, bearing with one another in love. May you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit to the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.